I could afford it, she would be in a private school five days a week. You're seeing thousands upon thousands of kids being left behind by not having in-person learning. I think there are some concerns about learning loss. I feel like she is a year behind. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news story? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one conversation with our reporters every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Welcome into The Debrief. I'm your host, Adam Cooperstein, in for David Ushery. Almost a year into the pandemic, and America is still struggling with what to do about our schools. Without a clear, comprehensive strategy at the federal or state level, districts have been left to make difficult decisions balancing the safety and education of our children on their own, and with little guidance, too. And while discussions about the best path forward rage on, there's no debate among educators and parents that remote learning is not an adequate replacement for an in-person education. But it's our underserved communities feeling the brunt of this learning loss. Studies show that black and brown students are less likely to be physically in classrooms during the pandemic than white students. And on this episode of The Debrief, we're gonna talk to a woman who's tracking school reopening plans and how COVID is only exacerbating the achievement gap that already existed. We start in Newark, New Jersey, one of the many predominantly black and Hispanic districts where public schools have been closed since March. When COVID hit, it just, you know, pulled back the covers to what we really were faced with. All six of Yolanda Johnson's children have attended Newark Public Schools, but her daughter in high school is really struggling right now with remote learning. I feel like she is a year behind. Yolanda says she would send her daughter back to school in person, but she doesn't have a choice. Newark schools have been remote only since March. If I could afford it, she would be in a private school five days a week. Just two miles away, but a world apart in educational opportunity, St. Benedict's Prep, open in person full time for some and part time for others. It's one of many private schools that thanks to resources that cover increased safety measures, reopened during the pandemic at the same time that public schools in New Jersey's two biggest cities, Newark and Jersey City, extended fully remote learning through at least spring break. We're seeing a bigger, bigger divide between the haves and have nots in urban areas. And, uh, you know, you're, you're seeing thousands upon thousands of kids being left behind by not having in-person learning. Jersey and City Mayor Steve Phillips says he'd like to see kids back in schools in a safe environment as quickly as possible. But the city's Board of Education just voted to extend virtual learning for the third time. The families that can afford that type of learning are getting a clear advantage. Across the tri-state, the most marginalized students are the least likely to be in the classroom during the pandemic. They also don't have the means to hire private tutors or set up learning pods as we've seen in wealthier communities. And experts worry it's only widening the achievement gap. The vulnerable community that already exists is going to move from vulnerable to compromised. Chanel McLeod runs Project Ready, a group dedicated to closing the opportunity gap in Newark. And with the importance of technology now adding to these disparities, she's focused on getting laptops to families that can't afford them. So when you have two, three, four or more students doing remote learning in one household with one device, how does that even work? 
It doesn't work. But the digital divide goes beyond devices. We have students that are trying to experience instruction at the same time that parents and families are likely working. And now we have spotty internet because everyone's all on one broadband that is not high quality. Or in Yolanda Johnson's case, no broadband at all. She's a home health aide and was out of work in the spring. So when she couldn't pay the cable bill, her daughter couldn't log on to school. Optimum is saying that I have to pay the past due balance of 200 um, and something dollars plus two months in advance. That is difficult for me to pay. We feel proud of the fact that we're offering this choice to families. The Stamford, Connecticut School District is 65% students of color. They're one of the rare large urban districts in the tri-state offering a hybrid learning approach. And they say they never considered not opening, at least partially. You know, many of our children, um, school is where they they feel the, the, the safest. They feel they, they are, they're fed there, they're taken care of. And then there's the teaching on top of all of that. In person or at home, educational inequality has only grown, hurting the very same communities hardest hit by the pandemic. We're already at a disadvantage. In And now let's welcome in Dr. Annette Anderson, the deputy director of the Johns Hopkins University Center for Safe and Healthy Schools. And Dr. Anderson, you have been a teacher, a curriculum coordinator, assistant principal. You served as the CEO for a charter school. So many qualifications, and we're so thankful to have you. But also, you're leading the work now at Johns Hopkins on a state-by-state -state school reopening tracker. And I'd love to start there with why it's so important during the pandemic for you and your colleagues at Johns Hopkins to do that. Well, first of all, I'd like to say thank you, Adam, for having me today. Uh, the work of reopening schools, as we have seen over these last many months, has proven to be entirely uneven. And so I, we thought that it was really critical to take a look at what states were actually doing. Uh, we developed 12 different criteria, some were operational and some were equity focused, to help us to hone in on what states were actually requiring of districts and from schools to make sure that schools opened in a timely manner. Uh, one of the things that we saw was that as we first launched the tracker back in, in July, was that there were a number of districts and a number of states that had not given much attention to things like transportation and to teacher choice and to children who are vulnerable. Uh, and so because our project is, is focused around equity, we wanted to see how that transitioned over the, the summer into the school reopening months. And so we saw that, you know, there was a great um, adherence, a great number of districts changed their policies and their plans so that they could begin to actually look at some of those critical areas around equity to make sure that schools reopened with as many services around after school programming, for example, as possible to serve families. So food, things like food and transportation became much more prominent in the uh, latter versions as districts were trying to respond to the needs that the community has as a result of this pandemic. In our reporting for this piece, that was one of the chief complaints from all parties. And these are, you know, different types when uh, politicians were talking, teachers, uh, parents, administrators, and normally they have so many competing interests, but almost <laughs> all of them said, this has just been downright confusing. And is there hope, Dr. Anderson, that that will change as a new education secretary, Dr. Miguel Cardona from Connecticut, uh, comes in with the Biden administration? 
There is so much hope, Adam. There's so much positive energy being directed towards this new administration because everyone wants our children to go back to school. Everyone wants to make sure that our most vulnerable children are going to be able to catch up, that we can provide some interventions for those students that have not had the best access to the remote technology, to the, the high-speed internet access that many of the more our more their more wealthy peers have been able to attain. So we know that it's important to try to get as many of those students back on track as quickly as possible. One of the things that I would say is that the pandemic has laid bare some some significant gaps that we in the education community always knew that existed, but it has really become a primary conversation about how we're going to make sure that we can fill in those gaps um, and catch those students up. We've got five to 10 percent, uh, it's been estimated, of our students across the country who are not fully engaged in their learning on a daily basis. So we have a big job to do. And so we're looking forward to the Biden administration coming in with a plan for the first 100 days to set the course so that we can get our students back on track and back into schools. We have found here in the tri-state area that the most marginalized communities are usually the least likely to get some form of in-person education, or at least the choice of it, uh, during the pandemic. Is that the case across the country? And what concerns you as, as someone who cares so much about education about that divide? Yes. Well, I think that there are a number of factors at play. I think that there are a lot of districts that have tried to figure out how they are going to provide choices and options. One of the things that has come about as a result of the pandemic is that parent choice has become much more prominent in the conversation about how to reopen schools. So there are some parents that feel comfortable with their children staying remote for now because they're just not convinced that schools are safe enough to reopen. Uh, you do have other parents that feel like there are so social emotional needs for their children that need to be met in the classroom. And so they're pushing to actually have those class, more classrooms reopen than have currently reopened. Um, and I think that what you're finding is that because there has just been such a wide variation all across the country about what constitutes a quote unquote safe school right now, there isn't a real, uh, there isn't a real direction about all the things that we need to know to get schools to open um, on time in every state, in every district. There are 14,000 districts all across the country. And so you had this patchwork of districts doing things very differently based on what the local guidance has been. You know, the CDC guidance has changed over time and that has forced the district guidance to change and school response to that to change. But parent voice has become pretty clear. Um, one of the top factors in how schools are choosing to reopen and schools and districts are responding to what parents are asking for. And so you might see in some districts where the most our most vulnerable students are trying to very diligently to, to stay engaged in their learning, that there has to be a plan that accommodates both a fully remote option, but then there's also a plan that may have a hybrid option. And so, for example, here in Baltimore, what you see is that there have been learning centers that have opened for some of the students, particularly special needs students, so that they can get some supports on a daily basis. But those families who want to have a fully remote option still have that option uh, at their disposal as well. One of the conversations that really stuck with me in our report, I spoke to a woman, Yolanda Johnson from Newark. Her daughter's in high school. Yolanda's a home health aide in Newark. She's a Newark public school student, her daughter, and they're fully remote and there's no plan to reopen at least until the spring at the earliest. And she said to me, you know, right down the street, if I could afford private school, my daughter would be in five days a week. And if I could do it, I would. 
Uh, Have you heard stories like that about just the the simple fact that in the same neighborhood where the infection rates the same, the virus transmission is the same, and yet the options based on wealth are so different? Yes. And so I agree with what you're saying, that there are so many different responses to this. And I think, again, it just lays bare that parents want more options. They want to be in the driver's seat about what the best educational situation for their children are. You do have some parents that are looking at vouchers. They're looking at scholarships. Some parents who have the means have started learning pods and you have some micro schools as a response to the pandemic. But then for families that don't have those means, they're looking at government funded options of choice, like I just said, with scholarships and with vouchers um, and looking towards options that would allow them to be able to put their children into independent schools or into parochial schools or perhaps into schools that have a more varied uh, variety of options other than just having remote. I think that as the next year goes on, you're going to see those kinds of trend lines continue because parents have made it very clear since the spring that they want more choices. They want more options and they want to be in the driver's seat, making those decisions for what is best for their family. Some of those decisions are based on academic concerns. Some of them, as I said, are based on social emotional concerns. Some families want their children to have interactions with their peers more often. Um, And so there are a number of factors um, that are going into how parents are making those decisions. But what I do know is that by the time we get to the fall of 2021, you are going to have districts trying to embrace several different types of options for students to return because families are making their preferences clear and schools are trying to be responsive as, as much as they possibly can with limited resources to be able to do that. That's interesting. That's another way that the pandemic will shift the way we operate as a society moving forward. Dr. Anderson, what about some of the, as one parent said, COVID pulled the curtain on the opportunity gap that already existed in her uh, majority minority community, her urban public school district. Um, Do you think that there's an awakening? Is that a potential positive impact of this pandemic? Well, I do think it's a positive impact. Uh, You know, I'll start with the technology piece. I mean, we are in the 21st century and we still have five to 10 percent of our students that can't get online for remote education every day because either they don't have a device that is uh, of, of the capacity to allow them to engage on a regular basis or they don't have access to high speed Internet. And we live in a time when, you know, it should be a right. It should be a, a public right for students to be able to have access to those things so that they can get their education. Uh, we also know that there is also a chronic shortage of teachers in some of our most under-resourced schools, and the pandemic has laid that bare. There's also, you know, in many districts you see that uh, superintendents are trying to make sure that they can cover substitutes uh, and for classes because they, you know, they have a challenge being able to fill the need for substitute teachers. Uh, teacher retention is going to be another issue that hits our most vulnerable communities. Uh, squarely uh, once schools reopen in the fall as teachers start to have fatigue around remote teaching. We have not trained teachers for the long term um, about best practices for keeping schools going virtual for an entire year. 
And so the prospect that that could happen and we have to continue to figure out how we're going to fly the plane while we're building it is very strong. And it's also for some teachers a challenge. Uh, and then you have the academic gap. I think there are some concerns about learning loss and for our most vulnerable students, how we assess that loss uh, and what we should be doing as uh, as an intervention to try to help to stem that. There's been call there have been calls for a national national tutoring corps to help to fill that. Uh, I would say that that's still a challenge because we would still have to be able to staff such a massive effort to provide tutoring to students to be able to provide that level of intervention to keep them on grade level. But that is one of the the ideas that I think uh, we we've seen uh, lately in the education community that has gotten a lot of traction. You've laid out very clearly, we've talked about how there hasn't been at the federal level uh, a a well laid out plan for reopening schools safely. But we have heard from uh, Dr. Fauci, for instance, say we want to prioritize in-person education as much as possible. Or we heard from the incoming education secretary saying, I recommend schools do offer in-person when possible, in-person when possible. So Moving forward, what do you expect once vaccinations for teachers are widely disseminated? What do you expect across America in our school system when it comes to how much students are in person after vaccinations are widely available? I think that we have to have a collaborative effort between public health and public education in a way that we've never done before. Um, We've got to be able to get the data. So we've got to get our hands around the data to understand where these cases are happening, when they're happening, is it happening in adults? Is it happening in our students? There has just been so much conflicting data from both the federal level and at the state level sometimes that I think parents aren't quite sure what to trust. And so as schools go back to reopen, I really think that it will be important and it will be incumbent upon our Department of Education to try to establish uh, some some bench some benchmarks and some um, some benchmarks around how to collect the data that we need to have for reopening schools to measure uh, the transmission rates, the positivity rates over time. Um, That's going to be a longitudinal task. And I think a lot of parents are going to want to see those trends uh, on a decline over time before they feel more comfortable sending their children back into schools on a day-to-day basis. But I think we've got the capacity to do that. Uh, We just have to make sure that that there is a collaboration that is collecting this data, that is it is aligning with the vaccination rate data. Uh, and so that when families are looking for this information, they can go to a source where they can get this information to help to drive their decision making about what's best for their household. Yeah. And the truth is, even though there's optimism about the vaccine and, and we all have optimism about a post pandemic world, it's not going away overnight. So these are things that are, are going to be in our world Uh, certainly in the immediate future and important. Well, Annette, thank you so much for walking us through this and helping us all become a little bit smarter on the topic. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a joy. Thank you. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to our production team, Melissa Mack, Darren Price, and Ben Berkowitz. I'm your host, Adam Cooperstein, in for David Ushery. We'll check back with you next time on The Debrief. 